Welcome to a special bonus edition of the Jesus Calling Podcast, featuring multiple guests who have appeared in their own episodes on the Jesus Calling Podcast, speaking to how they pursue peace for their lives. God promises a peace that passes all understanding when we trust Him to meet our needs. In good times or bad, we're still able to experience that peace only God can give, letting us know that He's got everything in His hands. We hope these stories will encourage you that anyone can find peace, even in times of pain and loss, and that we can all experience the kind of peace that will get us through any situation we may be facing. We'll start with a thought from former NFL linebacker Trent Shelton. My main dream was to make it professionally. I was, you know, inspired by my brothers. I was inspired by what was around me. I was blessed to have an uncle that still coaches in the NFL. And I lived across the street from Saints player Gene Atkins. His son Gino now plays for the Bengals. And so I was blessed to be able to like see my dream like vividly. You know, sometimes a dream is, you know, so far out of reach because we never experienced it, but I was able to experience it growing up. And uh, I just knew I wanted to do that, whether it's baseball, basketball, football. And football just ended up being the sport that I was better at. You know, it was terrifying at the same time because it's like when you realize that your vision can become a reality, you don't know if you're prepared for it. A lot of times people have imposter syndrome or a lot of times you think, oh, I'm not cut out for this. Or you think about the worst that could happen instead of the best that could happen. I've had it all. Everything the world promises you that will fulfill you. But if you're disconnected from God, you can have happiness, you can have success in the world, but you won't have that fulfillment and that peace. And I feel like God leaves a void in each and every one of us that can only be filled by Him. And until He fills that void, you will never feel that overwhelming internal peace in your life. So that's what it means to me. It's a reminder to no matter what you have and who you have in your life, if you don't have God, you know, you're probably missing a lot. Oftentimes, I feel like we place blame on God for situations we put ourselves in. And it was a lot of things I was putting myself in. I wasn't turning to Him. I wasn't turning to my faith. I was turning to, you know, clubs. I was turning to temporary fulfillment, turning to these things that will, you know, give me a temporary high, but leave me empty, you know, permanently. And uh, it took the death of one of my closest friends committing suicide to really wake me up in my life and make me realize, like, what am I doing with myself? And do I want this to be the legacy that I leave for my family, for my kids and for my grandkids? And that answer was no. I'm often connecting with God in nature. I'm a big nature person. I believe it's like God's just canvas of this world. I mean, it's just so much growth, so much life there. And I would say nature heals. You know, nature is God's natural medicine for the soul. So I'm often there in mountains <laughs> uh, talking to God and just reflecting and praying and just asking God to use me. My prayers, they used to be asking God for things. And now my prayers are, God, you know, what do you need from me? And that has brought more clarity in my life. That has brought more peace in my life. And I think we underestimate the value of peace. I think a lot of times we think we need, you know, all these things. But what we really need is peace that surpasses all understanding. And I feel like that can only come from God through reflection, through appreciation and through prayer. So I'm making sure that is a daily staple of my life. And I'm making sure my kids, you know, see that in my family, make sure that's the go to. You know, there's nothing too powerful for the power of prayer. You know, my dad taught me that and I always hold on to it. My overall mission is just to let people know that they're enough. I want a kid to know, like, 
maybe, you know, even despite your household, maybe your household isn't a good foundation or, or maybe you struggle with certain things or maybe you're not the popular one or maybe you, you're you an athlete and things aren't panning out right or maybe you're an adult and you have all these things. I want to let you know that despite all your transgressions, despite all your struggles, all your quote unquote flaws, you are still you and there's still a purpose for your life no matter what. Author, filmmaker, and pastor, Erwin McManus. You know, I've had so many dreams in my life and I've aspired to do so many different things and I've actually endeavored to, uh, to do so many different things in different careers and, and I've had a lot of successes and I've had an endless number of failures. I just think that when you have a broken dream, what you have to do is step back and realize that, that the loss of a dream isn't the loss of your intention. It should not be the loss of your, your destiny or your calling or your future. And one of the ways you, you can know you're pursuing the right dream is if you love the outcome, but not the process, it's the wrong dream. If you love the process and the outcome is an extra, then you're in the right dream. And that's why when you lose a dream, you probably were in the wrong dream. Because when you love the process, you never actually lose the, lose the dream because the process was a reward in itself. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, I live in LA, so it's the epicenter of dreamers, I think. And, and in fact, one of the metaphors in LA is the boulevard of broken dreams. And because so many people come to LA with huge dreams. And the problem is, of course, when 10,000 people come with the same talent and the same passion and the same training and the same skill set, and they're all fighting for the same dream. And even if they're all equally talented, one of them is going to get that job. One of them is going to step into that particular moment. And it can be devastating. You would think people who have such huge dreams could recover easily from a broken dream, but it's not true. Most of them, when they do not achieve the dream they long for, end up being paralyzed and they're floating through life. Humans are designed to be connected to the future. The reason we lose hope is we lose our confidence in a better future, that we can create a different future. And it's odd, if you think about it, that we humans need hope. I mean, when, when you look at the human experience, you go, okay, every human needs to drink water. Every human being, being needs to, to breathe oxygen. Every human being needs to eat to survive. So we know we all need to eat, drink, and breathe. That makes perfect sense because of our physiology. But how odd it is that humans have to have hope or we actually begin to die. Our souls begin to die. It's the soul telling us what humanity was supposed to be like, what life was supposed to be like. And it's our soul's reminder to us that we're created for more. And I just started processing how humans are incredible as a species. I mean, we, we've harnessed fire and light. We've harnessed nuclear power and solar power. We invented the internet, the telephone and the television. But as evolved as we are, we can't seem to create peace. Peace seems to constantly elude us, and we, in many ways, hold on to a magical view of faith. And so if we believe the right things, if we say the right things, if we hope the right things, then it's just supposed to happen. And so then we end up actually replacing a truly deep spiritual journey with magic and superstition. And that's why it leaves us so desperate. And because if you just quote these verses, you're supposed to get better. Or if you memorize this truth, it's supposed to change you. And that's why I use the metaphor of a warrior. The battle for peace.
peace is exactly that. It's a struggle, it's a battle, it's a, it's a daily engagement for that peace within your soul. And I wanted people to understand when you're fighting for inner peace, you're actually taking on a heroic journey. This is a warrior's battle and it will not come easily and it will not come without a struggle and it will not come without a fight. Jesus is clearly the singular personality that defines peace in all of human history. And, uh, and that to me is pretty extraordinary when you think about that 2,000 years ago, in the middle of conflict and a Roman oppression over the Jews, in the middle of a world of chaos and violence, and, and then dying the most violent death, Jesus becomes the icon in human history of peace, which should tell us something. And I, and I hope as people are searching for peace that they'll crash into Jesus. Christian singer-songwriter Jeremy Camp and his wife, Adrian. I moved from Indiana to California um, when I was 18. I went to Bible college, and um, you know, after that stint, I, I had a friend that was teaching a Bible study, and he said, "Hey, you know, there's this girl named Melissa. She's awesome. Um, you should meet her." But the problem was, my friend liked her, <laughs> and so I remember um, meeting this girl. And I didn't think anything of it at first, but I was leading worship, and I looked up. And she just was in this amazing uh, Holy Spirit in the presence of God moment that kind of, you know, took me by surprise because I had not seen anybody really that engaged in worship to the Lord. And so um, it really kind of attracted me to her. I mean, she was pretty, she's beautiful, but it was like that really attracted me to her was her heart, her passion for Jesus. We started talking and, you know, I, I knew that my friend liked her. And so I was a little bit uh, nervous to, to pursue this, this, you know, move forward. But she really, um, you know, it was hard for her because he was a good friend of hers. And, you know, we kind of did the whole breakup thing because of, you know, the fact that here we are, the friend of mine who, who likes her and all this drama and she couldn't handle it. And so I was like, all right, I guess we're done. And um, the long short of it is we got back together when I found out she had cancer. I remember her telling me when I kind of just asked her how she was doing and she had this amazing just glow, uh, just peace to her that was definitely supernatural. And when I asked how she was doing, that her response to me was, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing okay because I realized that, you know, if I die from this cancer, but if one person gives her life to Jesus, then it's all worth it kind of went away from the room that night and was like, God, if you want me to marry her, then if she tells me she loves me, I'll marry her. Just random, like, don't know why I said that. And I came back in one day and she just said, hey, I'll let you know that I've been praying for you and, and I love you. And, you know, just the, the progression forward was, I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know if she's gonna survive. We don't know and we're gonna have hope and fight through it, but I love her and I'm, I wanna be with her during that time. We got married, it was beautiful. You know, as we got married, things were looking better. And two weeks into our um, honeymoon, she, you know, was having these issues with her stomach. And I kind of at that point just started having that fear. And we got home and the doctors, you know, did tests on her and said that she had weeks to months to live. And three and a half months into our marriage, she went to be with the Lord. And it was, to say the least, you know, the biggest challenge of my faith I'd ever experienced before. And, you know, God definitely, um, you know, walked me through some grieving that was not easy. And I was very honest and very raw. 
I love God's word because there's it's chock full of all these promises. And, you know, there's some that I love that says, you know, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. You know what I mean? And it's that understanding that when you're going through those hard trials, he's not left you nor forsook you. He literally is right there with you and he's near to to those that are broken. Um, I think there's scriptures that I always knew growing up that I had to really let it sink deep in my heart. And it was, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, all right, trust the Lord with all your heart. So you have to really go, okay, here's my heart. Am I actually going to trust him with all my heart? Because right now I'm having a hard time trusting and I'm holding back pieces because I'm scared. So you have this like true going, I can't lean in my understanding because I don't understand it. It says in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So just saying, okay, God, I'm going to acknowledge you in this. I'm going to acknowledge you and acknowledge my pain and acknowledge my hurt, be real with you. And I know that you'll direct me, but that's kind of where, in a sense, my true faith journey began. Having to trust the Lord in the midst of the hardest trial and tribulation. When I met Jeremy on tour, I had at that point been away from my family and my church and everything for a while, a couple years at that point, almost three years. And I was really not doing well spiritually, just in a very dry, hard, hard place, just kind of jaded. And um, when I, in fact, it wasn't love at first sight by any means. (laughs) But when I heard Jeremy share his testimony, I I was in such a search for something authentic and real. uh, I was blown away by somebody who could watch his wife suffer and die and still be standing up saying, Lord, I believe. And even though I don't understand everything and even though this is hard, I'm choosing to trust you and I'm choosing to walk through this, just clinging onto you. And so I would hear him share that from stage, but then I kind of cornered him backstage because I was curious. Like, okay, where's the loophole? I want to find out more. And so I would just ask him question after question after question. And I could tell that his faith was so authentic and so real. And for me personally, I just felt like I'd never met anybody like him. You know, I really fell in love with her is is every time we would talk about Jesus, like she would just light up. It's like she was craving more of Jesus. And I think that to me, um, that's what you want. You want someone that wants to know more about Jesus, that wants to have a deep relationship with Him. And I think that, you know, you can have all the knowledge that you want and know God's Word all that you want, but it's about your love and your desire for intimacy with Him and to grow. Knowing Him is what really matters. And so that's what really attracts me to her. And so God just kind of put us together and here we are almost 17 years later. Um, Crazy. Wow. A lot of what we endure and as uh, people here, we all endure hardship and pain really is universal. It's, it's everyone experiences it. And everybody in the midst of that pain, they want hope. And you know, this is just, just a story of someone who went through a hardship, went through pain and realized that the only thing that got him through it was Jesus. And that is the only hope and the only true source of peace and joy. And he's the answer to everything. I think this world tries to give us all these different ways in order to deal with our stresses or to find peace or to find satisfaction. And it really will only be found in Christ alone. And I think that's just such the key to this, is saying I need to run to to Jesus, to Him, for His source of peace. Writer, speaker, and singer, Crystal Evans Hurst. 
I am the daughter of Tony and Lois Evans, and uh, my dad is a pastor and has been all of my life. Been in the same church that he founded for 40 years. There are four of us total siblings, and we grew up in a great Christian home, having had the opportunity to be a part of the development of the spiritual legacy that my family has, has of course impacted me. and. I definitely think that that is forms a great foundation for who I am today and what I'm doing today. But a part of my experience and a part of my story has everything to do with the choices that we each individually get to make about what we take on from our history and our upbringing, what we eschew, uh, and how we learn to embrace the Lord uh, in our own lives uh, as individuals, how we choose to engage with Him in everyday life. Built in me was the desire to succeed, straight A student. I did not really work hard to be a people pleaser. I just ended up pleasing people because I just usually did what people wanted me to do. People assumed that I was that you know preacher's kid who couldn't wait to get loose and do my own thing. And I really wasn't like that at all. I was always a good girl and liked being a good girl. But what I always say is that Adam and Eve in the garden had the best parent ever. But he gave them the best gift ever, which is choice. And that's the same gift we all have. And sometimes we make good ones and sometimes we don't. I made choices in college. I was in love. And this was a guy who um, had been a family friend. I mean, this is not like some random person I ran into in college. And we ended up going to the same college and things happen. And so I didn't end up pregnant at 19, which was one of my, one of the first moments where I remember thinking, whose life am I living? This is not even, this is not even mesh in the least with what I anticipated for my life. I didn't grow up around a lot of teenage pregnancy, that one of my friends, you know, a lot of times it's societal or it's cultural or nope, not my story, not my family situation. Everybody's married. I mean, it just wasn't, but I looked in the mirror and thought, okay, how did I end up here? Um, there was a huge cognitive dissonance in my life because of this reality that was totally uh, juxtaposed against my expectation. When you are alone, when you feel alone, when you feel um, isolated, when you feel ashamed, when you feel guilt, when you feel bad in that place, that place where it's a little dark and you're a little farther away from everybody else, or at least it feels that way, that is a place where you can get to know God in a completely different way than you can when everything's right side up. And so I searched the scripture during that time in a different way. I cried out to Him in a different way. I begged Him in a different way. And He really was the closest person to me because I felt so far away from everyone else. So. Because I experienced a deep love from Him of me during that time, that is and still continues to be the my deep theological truth that I really want to convey to people in all different circumstances of life caused by themselves or caused by other people or just life, that regardless of where you are, God really, really does. He really, really loves you. Food Network celebrity chef, Melissa D'Arabian. You know, we're in this space where as a society, we are both obsessed with food 
and very disconnected from our food. So we have celebrity chefs and people read cookbooks for entertainment and they, you know, post every single meal that they eat on Instagram with these kind of crazy filters. But then a lot of us are not cooking our food, let alone are we part of the growing and the creation process of our food. And I'm not saying that we all need to be farmers, but there is a, um, there is a cost to us being as far separated from the source of our food as we have become. So in this world where in society we're, we're obsessed with food and I, society has a lot of messages about food, and it was all kind of confusing. And so I, I decided in this whirlwind of societal messages to say, okay, I see what society is saying about food, but what does God have to say about food? What does God have to say about how we think about food for ourselves and our bodies and each other and the earth and how we connect with one another and how we relate to God? I think that there are a lot of aspects of our food system that in society, we've been viewing as flaws to the food system. For instance, our food requires patience and food also requires a certain amount of work. We need to then buy in in advance and then think about how we're gonna prepare it and then we need to clean up afterward. You know, we've um, living in a society that tells us essentially that the time that we're spending in the kitchen is wasted. But what if all of these features of the food system aren't flaws, but actually invitations into a greater joy and into a greater connection and with our maker and with each other. Doesn't that change a little bit how we look at the worthy work of preparing our food, of the worthy work of doing the dishes after our guests have gone home? So we can lean into the deliciousness and we can step away from the societal language of guilt that we need to not enjoy a tomato because it has too much sugar. We can step away from the societal language of turning the worthy work of hospitality and welcoming people into our homes into performance. That's a societal construct, this idea that we should find the greatest Pinterest recipe and impress our friends with this recipe, bring them into our home and make them think you spent hours in the kitchen and you didn't. You know, that kind of language is what society is saying about food. But what God is saying about food is filled with invitation. It's filled with connection to him and to each other. For years and years, I've been a reader of the Bible in the mornings. And then I'll add in like a daily devotional. And Jesus Calling was where I added in that devotional piece to my morning time with God. I love the idea of sort of imagining Jesus talking in, in these words that I haven't already read in the Bible. <laughs> like I think, I think there's something about that that's um, it's sort of sweet and comforting. I find a comfort in it and a welcoming in Jesus Calling. This is the Jesus Calling passage from April 18th. Peace is my continual gift to you. It flows abundantly from my throne of grace just as the Israelites could not store up manna for the future, but had to gather it daily, so it is with my peace. The day-by-day -day collecting of manna kept my people aware of their dependence on me, 
Similarly, I give you sufficient peace for the present when you come to me by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. If I gave you permanent peace, independent of my presence, you might fall into the trap of self-sufficiency. May that never be. I have designed you to need me moment by moment. As your awareness of your neediness increases, so does your realization of my abundant sufficiency. I can meet every one of your needs without draining my resources at all. Approach my throne of grace with bold confidence, receiving my peace with a thankful heart. I love that this passage refers to the Israelites and the manna because it speaks to the generosity of God. The Israelites were complaining and grumbling about how, oh, we shouldn't have left Egypt. We were slaves, but at least we had good meat and we had food to eat. They were complaining. They were not coming with thanksgiving to God. And yet God turns around and gives them manna. And he tells them not to store it up, which I love that the beauty of us trusting God and getting our literally our daily bread, our daily fill. That was the beauty of what Jesus did in his compassion with food. It wasn't just the big miracles and the, and the feeding of the masses. Jesus shared a table with the marginalized and shared lives with them. Musician Paul Cardell. I am Paul Cardell. I was born with only half a heart, but God's made up all the difference. He gave me the gift of music. And because of the number of surgeries I've had in my life, I've been using music as a tool to help heal your heart because he has healed mine. Growing up, it was, we, we don't know if you're going to live very long, um, but my parents were always optimistic, like, we'll see what God has planned. It's heavy. It's heavy. But, you know, my parents, uh, they involved God in everything we do. God was a big part of our life. And leading up to those next major open heart surgeries that I needed to have, because I've got, you know, at age 13, I got an infection that was so horrible. The antibiotics wasn't even killing this infection. And I was in the hospital, not sure if I'd survive. So they had my family come up and say goodbye to me. So then again, at age 13, you know, I'm faced with this. And then the miracle happened, you know, he, through the doctors, have given medical people the knowledge on how to temporarily preserve life. And then at age 14, I had to come back for major reconstructive surgery. And then I went in, and as I was about, about to go into the third surgery, my father, I was crying. I said, Dad, Dad, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to suffer. I'm tired of this. By that time, I had come to know that God is very loving, very kind, and I wanted to go home. I said, I want to go home. And I don't know where my dad got the strength, but he said, son, go in there, get the surgery and come out and live for your mother. So I went in and I did the surgery and I came out. I had a completely new perspective and, and life and respect for my, my father. So I was fortunate to have him as my father. I just needed strength. I needed that person in the midst of the storm to say, peace, be still.
life is a puzzle. How do you put the pieces together? And I was feeling, I was feeling God telling me everything is okay. I've got you. You know, this is a gift I'm giving you. I waited 385 days for my heart transplant. I was on the list that long. And to lead up to this, the hardest thing in my world was I knew that for me to live, it meant somebody had died. So I asked my brother, like, I just, I don't, how would you wrap your head around it? And he told me, and he actually laid hand on me and blessed me. And he said, listen, because of your organ donor, you're going to live a little longer. But because of Jesus Christ, you'll live forever. And he laid down his life so willingly for all of us. And that gave me the hope that, you know, this is going to work out. So, but as I came out of that surgery with this young man, this donor, this incredible heart, four-chamber heart, I woke up to heaven on earth because there was my family. And that moment, I felt God's spirit so strong, so powerful. Olympic athlete, Lolo Jones. I definitely think that my hardships were molding me for the life that I would have to go through later. I mean, there were times where I was embarrassed if there was a school dance and I knew my mom didn't have enough money to buy me a dress, so I just wouldn't go to the school dance. And then some other parents found out and offered to get me a secondhand dress. Or, you know, my first pair of running shoes were donated from somebody's car. Like, they, they had an extra pair of running shoes in the trunk of their car. So I, my first pair of running shoes were, you know, hand-me-downs. And so I think that that's always what's kept me just going. And even when you're a runner sometimes, you know, your hardest workouts and it's breaking you down. It's you're, you're like, how am I going to get through this? I mean, your, your body is failing on you. You feel all the pain accumulating in your legs. Your lungs are burning. But somehow you manage to get through. You manage to finish by just enough. And once you cross that finish line, you are so strong and you just come alive. And I think that that's what God was doing to me and my family in those moments by just allowing just enough is to really rely on Him and His provision. I had a very successful college career. I was 11-time All-American. I had won an NCAA title. So I was one of the top collegiate hurdlers. Uh, I went to my first Olympic trials, and that's where my world was completely shaken up. I mean, I, I was competing now against the pros, and I didn't even make the final. I wasn't even the top eight in the U.S. I mean, you talk about you go from the top in college and then just being squashed like a bug. That's essentially what happened. And so I remember my first year, I was getting fifth through seventh in all of the professional races. Then my second year pro, I, I was getting third through fifth. And then I started getting top three. And then the year of the 2008 Olympic trials, I went into the Olympic trials and not only did I win and made my first Olympic team, 
I was the fastest hurdler in the world. So I went from four years ago, coming out of college, not even being good enough to be in the finals at the Olympic trials to making my first Olympic team and being the best in the world. I go to my first games and I mean, I stayed focused. I ran the first two rounds, I kept getting faster. The semifinals, I ran the fastest time ever in my life. And so I head into the finals, the whole world is watching and people are saying, she's running so fast, she could break the uh, Olympic record. She's a shoe in to win this medal. I zoned it all out. I wanted to focus on being in the moment. And I remember the race sets off, hurdle three, four, and five, I'm crushing it. I knew I was in the lead. And then out of nowhere, I hit the ninth hurdle. And in that moment, I knew I had lost the Olympic gold medal, but I figured I could still come away and squeak uh, a bronze out or a silver. And, and then I cross the finish line and I look up at the scoreboard and I see my name and it says seventh. And I was just absolutely devastated. And so I collapsed to the track and I just remember God whispering to me, but you're here but you're here. Four years ago, you were crying because you were sitting at home watching the Olympics on TV, and now you're here. And after that moment, I went back to the Olympic Village and I went to my dorm room and I did praise and worship. And I was so grateful, my heart flooded with joy, and it just taught me so many different things, you know, how we can continue to have promotions, and then the moment we get promoted, then if we're already looking to our next promotion and not being grateful for the, the new level God has given us. And then it also taught me how to praise in the midst of my heartbreak and that God could give me peace, joy, and clarity to hold me through those moments. So it was just an incredibly, that night after I lost the Olympic gold was my most peaceful night. You know, that was the hardest, the hardest, hurtful race in my life. But that night, I had so much peace. Legendary country music singer, Reba McIntyre. Well, I grew up on a working cattle ranch in southeastern Oklahoma. I grew up on 8,000 acres. And us four kids, Alice Pake, myself, and Susie, we were the hired hands along with Grandpap and Louis Salmon. And Mom and Daddy, all of us, we was a, it was a family working ranch. So we got out there and we did all the chores and gathered the cattle and worked them and put them out on pasture up in the mountains. And Daddy is a three-time world champion rodeo cowboy. He won the steer roping championship in 57, 58, and 61. Mama was the bookkeeper at the ranch and also the bookkeeper at Kiowa High School where all of us kids went to school. And we would rodeo with Daddy in the summer and then I had to go back to school playing basketball and rodeoing as kids would and mama would haul us around to singing gigs and just had a wonderful growing up years. I always wanted to be a, a rodeo cowgirl. I wanted to be a world champion barrel racer. And then I wanted to be a professional basketball player. I'm 5'6". That wouldn't have worked out very well. And I wasn't that good besides that. But that's the two things I wanted to do. And Daddy always was like, Reba, why don't you just practice your singing? My favorite songs when I was growing up was anything Loretta Lynn sang. 
I loved her hymns. I loved her albums. I got to meet her when I was a kid. I absolutely loved it. It was at a rodeo there in Ada, Oklahoma, and she was one of the entertainers. And she was back uh, behind the bleachers uh, walking to her bus, and all of us kids ran up there, and I whooped off my belt, and I got her to sign it. I don't know where that belt is now. I'd give anything if I still had it. So later on, oh gosh, I was in college, but still rodeoing, and uh, finally got my break in the music business. And so I was 21 years old when I got my contract singing. So well, I continued singing because that was where I could make the money. And what a money I made, I went off rodeoing, spent that on entry fees, and I'd go back singing and make a little more money. <laughs> Everything was a baby step, very slow. And it took six years for me to have a number one record. I, I didn't get discouraged. I, as long as it was moving forward, I'm okay. If it was standing still and going backwards, I probably would have quit. And nowadays, that's just unheard of. You know, I was very lucky that I came on the scene when I did, that they were patient with me, they taught me, and it, it really built a strong foundation. And then by the time I did finally get a number one record, we had, I had lots of friends and buddies and teachers and guides to celebrate with. I don't think I could have gotten through the plane crash, uh, the divorce, all the changes in my life without the Lord, because that's that rock, that's the fortress that you lean upon when things go wrong, when things go bad. I don't remember who was the first one that gave me one, but there was like a, a time, must win when it just first came out. Jesus calling, and then Jesus always. I've got both of them. Fans were giving me that book. My friends were giving me that book. And so I'd, you know, open it up on the day and read. And like, now, how did that book know I needed that today? And I'd call my sister Alice. I said, listen what this said today. She said, oh my gosh, that hit me so hard. I needed that today. It's just a short thing to read. Doesn't take any time, but to start your day off like that, it's so encouraging, makes you feel good. You know, I, I tell you what really got me was December the 24th. I speak to you from the depths of the eternity. Before the world was formed, I am. You hear me in the depths of your being where I have taken up residence. I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. I, your Lord and Savior, am alive within you. Learn to tune in to my living presence by seeking me in silence. This is a great book. Every page is great, but boy, that hit my heart really strong. That's great. And I finally figured out to be still, when you're still, you can listen. And if you're not still, you can't. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of the Jesus Calling Podcast. Be sure and subscribe to the Jesus Calling Podcast so you can hear the full stories from each of these guests. And also make sure you get these special bonus episodes each month. For more information on Jesus Calling and Sarah Young, please visit JesusCalling.com or visit us on our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.